Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology, and first daily Mormon history podcast. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Brian Reedy, a former Baptist pastor and author of the book Crossing the Divide. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about different ideas and priesthood between the Baptist and LDS churches. We'll also talk about how he went from fraud to profit concerning Joseph Smith. That had to be a big jump. And of course, he has to get over the polygamy hurdle as well. So you won't want to miss his conversation. Check it out. So was let's talk a little bit about priesthood. Was it a difficult transition from the priesthood you held to joining the LDS church and starting? I, I assume you probably started as a deacon. Is that right? I was ordained a priest. Oh, right off the bat. Yeah. Okay. So I had the Aaronic priesthood, but as a priest is what okay. they gave me. And so then about a year later, they gave me the Melchizedek priesthood. So they figured, given my experience in my previous life, that I had uh, I, I had qualified for that. Okay. Because it seems like the people that I know, usually you're a deacon for a week and then a teacher for a week and then a priest for a few months. And Yeah. No, I was. They made me a priest, so Enough that was that was nice for them to be able to do that. I think again, I think given my ecclesiastical background, they thought, well, you know, we could probably just make him a priest. Plus, you know, so yeah, that was cool. And so there wasn't a big transition between how LDS handled priesthood and and the Baptists. Not really. Baptists look at priesthood differently. Uh, Baptists tend to believe in what's called the priesthood of, of all believers, that all believers have a certain level of authority, though they wouldn't have a sac- they wouldn't be able to do sacraments. But and and really it's not that much different than well, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here. Like all believers can pray. All believers can ask God for healing and, and ask God for blessings and so forth. Very similar to the LDS understanding of you know, all right. believers have that ex- aspect. Um, the idea of authority in Baptist life comes through two channels. It comes through the, the Scripture, and it comes through the local congregation. So what happens is each Baptist church, there's not a, a large uh, denominational structure for Baptists. Each Baptist church is its own 501c3. So that means, and that kind of maybe helps Latter-day Saints understand why Baptist pastors are paid, because each Baptist pastor is essentially running a nonprofit corporation. So that's, that's part of it. So I feel the way I became a pastor is I felt God was calling me to pastor. The churches I was serving at, uh, through watching my life and their own spiritual validations, licensed me to gospel ministry and eventually ordained me to be a to be a, a minister. Then what would happen is I would there are uh, different organizations within the Baptist church that kind of serve as human resources, if you will, where I can send them my resume. And when churches are looking for a pastor, they can contact these organizations and they'll send them a bunch of resumes. And so then this church that I pastored at, they got my resume, so they wanted to meet me. I met with them. I talked to them. I uh, 
uh, preached and so forth, and they prayed, and they felt God wanted me to be the pastor of their church, so they called me. So my authority to pastor comes from God and comes from the Word of God. My authority to minister in that congregation comes from God, but it also comes from the local congregation. So very kind of different structure of authority than what um, LDS might be accompanied to, because if they wanted to fire me, they could. Then I wouldn't have the authority to, to do the Lord's Supper or baptisms in that congregation anymore. Kind of a different structure. Does that happen very often? Yeah, it happens quite a bit. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of turnover in Baptist Church. The average pastorate is about three years. Oh, really? Yeah, and sometimes, most of the time, it's the pastor feeling called to a different church, but sometimes it's the church saying, we don't want you to be our pastor anymore. Bye. It can be a very cruel process. It really hmm. can. It's, it never happened to me like that, but it can be a very cruel process. I've seen some Is that people. for political reasons? Or yeah. They don't like what the pastor's preaching? Yeah, a lot of it. Or he made the wrong people mad. You know, the, the people that, the, the power structure in the church, he made the wrong people mad, and so they don't want him to be there anymore, you know. That hmm, kind of that's thing. interesting. Yeah. So one of the questions that I had was to try to understand authority, my authority and, and so forth. So I actually had to, got to talk with a, the stake president and an Area 70 trying to, because I believe that, I, as a Baptist pastor, I had the authority to to do baptisms and to do the Lord's Supper. But Baptists don't believe in baptismal remission. We don't believe baptism for remission of sin. In in Baptist life, baptism Baptist baptism is a symbol. It is a necessary symbol. It is like my wedding ring. It is a symbol that I have become a Christian. But it has no salvific or efficacious meaning. It's just merely a symbol. And the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It is just a symbol. It's a symbolic uh, reenactment of the Lord's Supper. It's a symbolic communion with Christ and partaking the elements. So when I talked to some of the church leaders, I said, I believe that I had the authority to do those things. I didn't have the authority to baptize for the mission of sins or to seal people for time and all eternity or to do baptisms for the dead, but guess what? We didn't believe in that thing anyway, so that would make sense. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I think I think you're right, because it's important for Latter-day Saints to understand that my, my Christian experience and my experience as a pastor was just as valid and just as meaningful to me as my experience is as a Latter-day Saint today. And I would never affirm or commit to anything that would negate or somehow diminish that experience. Very cool. Now, one thing we haven't touched on that I'd really like to dive a little deeper into is you said that growing up as a Baptist, you thought Joseph Smith was a fraud. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from fraud to prophet? All right. Good question. There were, as I began to look at his life, there were a couple of things, three things really, that, that helped me transition. Number one was his capacity for forgiveness. Uh, during the Missouri period, W.W. Feltz and Orson Hyde both signed affidavits against Joseph that were one of the reasons he got put in Liberty Jail one of the reasons, not the only, there's 
It's a complex issue, but they were one of the reasons that, that these bad things happened to them. And then after they get out of liberty, both men come to Joseph and they ask for forgiveness. Now, if two of my close associates had done something that got me put in jail, and I felt unjustly put in jail, even I would have a hard time forgiving them. Mm-hmm. I would. Same, same here. I would have a hard time forgiving them. But even Joseph, as a pastor. Right. <laughs> but Joseph's like, you know, that beautiful, come on, brother, the, the beautiful language in the letter to W.W. Phelps, the war is over, and, what you know, brothers at first are now brothers at last. And he forgave them both. You know, Parley Pratt at one time had a falling out with Joseph. He forgave him. Orson Pratt had a falling out with Joseph. He forgave him. Christianity is the only religion that mandates forgiveness. It's a virtue in other religions. But in Christianity, we are commanded to forgive. If you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. It's a commandment. And I would argue that only through the Holy Spirit can we really truly forgive someone. And so for Joseph to be able to forgive them, he had to have had that connection to the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. So that's the first thing. All right, so the second part. So the first part was Joseph's capacity had to have been as a result of some kind of connection to the Holy Spirit. I don't believe he would be able to forgive those men unless he had some, a Christian connection, a Christian experience. Number two is his compassion for people. Think about Nauvoo, 1839, the, the malaria epidemic. Joseph was sick, okay? Not only did he give up his bed, he gave up his house, and he moved into the front yard into a tent. If I'm sick, you're not getting me out of my bed. Now, granted, it was a little bit different. They didn't have all the comforts in a home, so sleeping in a tent was a a huge difference the way it is today. But still, (laughs) if I have malaria, I'm not getting out of my bed. I'm sorry you're sick. I'm not leaving my bed. Joseph not only moved out of his bed, he moved out of his house. He camped out in a tent in his front yard so other people more sick than him. That's not the behavior of a fraud. That's not the behavior of a maniac or a crazy person. That's a that's the behavior of someone who really cares about his people. And the third thing was his death. You know, it's if you look at people like Jim Jones or David Koresh, and you study the way they came and the way the early church arose, there's some interesting similarities. Charismatic leaders, very poor, got a group of people together. You know, it's all about brotherhood. You know, the new millennium, the new Jerusalem, you know, a prophet, all of those three groups had polygamy enter into it at some point in time. But je- but look at the difference between the way Joseph died and the way those two men died. Joseph knew that his time was coming to an end. Uh, Hancock County in 1844 was a tinderbox. Some people say that Joseph, you know, was thinking that he would get out of it, but I don't buy that for a minute. Thomas Sharp you know, multiple editorials, Joseph Smith is not safe out of Nauvoo. And then, of course, when you had the whole expositor fair happen, uh, we have no time for comment. Let each man make its own. Let it be made with powder and ball. Joseph knew his life was at risk anywhere outside of Nauvoo. Joseph could have easily marshaled the legion, set up breastworks, and engaged in a massive, bloody civil war, and hundreds if not thousands of people would have been killed and wounded because those people in Nauvoo would have fought for Joseph to protect him. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that. 
He's like, we're going to get out of town. We're going to go out west. And we're going to, you know, all they really want is me. If I leave, then you guys will be safe. So he begins to leave. And, of course, then within hours, the letters start arriving. The messengers, you're, you're a coward. You're deserting us. And I believe when Joseph made this comment, he goes, my life is of no value to my friends. It's of no value to myself. And he went back. Joseph could have left and ignored his friends. Joseph could have engaged in the Civil War, and he didn't do that. Joseph went to Carthage knowing there was a good possibility he would be killed, and he did that because he loved his friends. Greater love hath no man than a man lay down his life for his friend. And that's what Joseph, I believe, Joseph believed he was doing when he went to Carthage. And those are not the actions of a charlatan. Those are the actions of a man who loves his people and a man who feels convicted to be the leader of his people. And so those three things, his compassion, his capacity, forgiveness, and his willingness to sacrifice his life for his people were the things that really got me able to see Joseph as not just a, a con man, but as, something, as, as a prophet. Very cool. Polygamy? Polygamy is a sticky wicket. It really is. Uh, for people that want to say it's just about Joseph slaking his lust— Certainly there is stuff there, but that is a very one-sided and narrow reading of the material. For those who say that polygamy was simply merely Joseph's response to a command of God, there's certainly an argument to be made there too, but that is certainly a very one-sided reading of the material. I think polygamy is very complex. The thing that most people point to when it comes to polygamy is Joseph married a 14-year-old girl. But what people don't talk about when they get to that is it was the 14-year-old girl, year girl's father who came to Joseph and asked Joseph to marry her. Joseph didn't proposition a 14-year-old. The 14-year-old's dad came to Joseph. Why? Because his dad wanted to be linked. There's a lot about polygamy. You're talking about Helen Mark Kimball. Helen Mark Kimball. Yeah, yeah. His, his dad wanted the families to be linked. Um, there's a lot about polygamy that is really tied up into the temple, current temple understanding of ceilings. And scholars are really only beginning to, to delve into that and to unpack that. But yes, some of the actions of polygamy, the, the pressure of, of asking young women to marry him, that certainly raises questions. And Joseph shouldn't be given a pass on that just because he claimed it was a command from God that needs to be looked at uh, more in-depth, as scholars are now doing. But at the same time, there was this view among families that to be connected to Joseph ensured their salvation. So if I can get my daughter sealed to him, then then that's something I might think about doing. Uh, granted, in 21st century um, culture, that is abhorrent. But even if you look to the mid-1900s, you know, Elvis propositioned Priscilla for the first time when she was 14. They didn't get married for another 10 years. Jerry Lee Lewis married his 13-year-old cousin. So uh, 50 years ago, that stuff, as creepy as it sounds today and as, as questionable as it was then, it was still I, had a, I have a relative that's still alive today that I know that she married her husband when she was 14 years old. And so uh, it's I'm not excusing it. Or, or trying to wash, wash it in any way. I'm just saying it's a very complex issue. And if you really want to get into it, start reading the scholarship and, and look at uh, 
polygamy as the foundation for the concept of modern temple ceiling. Very good. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Brian Reedy, author of Crossing the Divide. In our next conversation, I found out that he is an actor in the Nauvoo pageant. The Nauvoo pageant played a role in my conversion uh, because we it's it, it was through the pageant. We went up one summer, uh, and they were giving away free CDs of the music. Back then, it was they still they didn't have the streaming. It was CDs. <laughs> and so I signed up for one knowing that I was going to be giving the CD by missionaries. But when those missionaries that came, that's what kickstarted the process that eventually led to my joining the church. So this, if you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, subscribe on either Patreon or at gospeltangents.com. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire audio uninterrupted. On our $10 tier, if you'd like to see the whole video, you can see that uh, either on youtube.com slash gospel tangents, or I've got a special Facebook group devoted for uh, full videos. So subscribe at gospeltangents.com and uh, sign up for just $10 a month. For $20 a month, if you'd like to get some bonus content, uh, maybe some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you can sign up for that. And then if you'd like to talk to me for $100 a month, we'll, we'll do a monthly phone call on something like Zoom, and you can ask me anything you want. So thanks again. Also, don't forget about the merch, mugs, t-shirts, um, hats, things like that. I'm trying to get the ties up there. Hopefully I can get up, up there. And uh, thanks again for watching Gospel Tangents. And click here for some more videos.